Listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's going to stop Christ? Who's going to stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you live today from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma, where 119 summer educational program campers are getting ready to head home if they haven't already after three weeks of life-changing instruction and really fun activities. It's really been a lively campus here the last few weeks. Excellent being able to interact with the campers the few times I had a chance to do that. And of course, a lot of you listening right now were really invested in that camp. Maybe you had children attending or children in your Philadelphia Church of God congregation attending this camp. And of course, many more of you without those types of relations, I'm sure we're praying a lot about all the details that the camp would be as successful as possible. And you will see that prayer will have a large role in today's show. It was an epic showdown. Good versus evil. On the side of the good, just one true prophet of God. And yet he had to face 850 false prophets. 450 of the Phoenician god Baal, and 400 more believed to be of the Phoenician goddess Astarte. Ancient Israel was cloaked, covered, drenched in paganism at this time. And the prophet Elijah had something to say about it. He told the evil Israelite King Ahab, to gather all these hundreds and hundreds of false prophets and the entire nation in one place. And right there, Elijah would confront them all by himself. 1 Kings 18 verse 21 says, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? If the eternal be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Elijah's telling them, all right, stop messing around. This isn't a game. You have to choose. You can't just enjoy the blessings from the true God while behaving however you want to and worshiping false gods. It won't work. Verse 22 of 1 Kings 18, Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the eternal, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And again, a few verses before that, it also says 400 other prophets of the groves likely 
the goddess Astarte. So hundreds and hundreds of false prophets here in this scene. Elijah tells them, he declares to them with confidence that he is the only one with any authority whatsoever, with any power to actually have his prayers answered, as we'll see. So he lays down this challenge in front of these false prophets, in front of all the people of Israel. He tells the false prophets to make their own altar and try to give an offering to their false gods and see if these gods will consume that offering with fire from heaven. Now, of course, these are false gods. They're made out of wood and stone and metal. They're not real. They can't bring down fire from heaven to consume an offering. Elijah knew this. Somehow the prophets didn't know that. So they took him up on this challenge. And these prophets actually ended up crying out to their false gods all morning. 1 Kings 18, verse 26. They were saying, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Verse 27, And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or... He is in a journey, or peradventure he sleeps and must be awaked. 1 Kings 18, verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. These false prophets really went to some extremes to try to provoke results from their false gods. And they received no answer at all. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. He builds up an altar of God that had been destroyed or at least damaged or deteriorated from disuse. He builds up his altar. He puts his offering on it, his, his animal sacrifice. And he tells the men there, Pour 12 barrels of water on top of my altar. Three separate times they would pour four barrels of water on top. So 12 total. Water was flooding the altar, flooding the trench around the altar. And this was just so that Elijah could remove all doubt in what was about to happen. There was no secret fire underneath the altar that he could somehow light without anyone noticing. The only way his offering would be consumed would be by fire from heaven. It's drenched. There's no other way for it to happen. It's physically impossible for a fire to consume the offering now. It has to be a miracle from God. And then notice this, 1 Kings 18, verses 36 and 37. Elijah the prophet came near and said, 
eternal God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O eternal, hear me, that this people may know that you are the eternal God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Notice this instant result to Elijah's prayer. 1 Kings 18, verse 38. There's no hesitation here between the prayer and the result. Then the fire of the eternal fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. It ate not only the offering, but everything around it. Everything involved with the altar was consumed by that fire from heaven. And finally, verse 39, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Eternal, He is the God. The Eternal, He is the God. So they're repeating this. They're shocked and humbled by this. They surely felt pretty corrected that they had fallen for the tricks of these false prophets when those false prophets couldn't get any kind of result like that. So Elijah actually revealed the one true God to the nation of Israel. He broke through this wall of paganism with powerful proof of God's existence. Notice what the late educator and theologian Herbert W. Armstrong wrote about this experience in chapter 22 of his autobiography, available to you for free at thetrumpet.com. In this chapter titled Astounding Answers to Prayer, Mr. Armstrong wrote, Elijah did not need to talk God into it by a long prayer or by repeated prayers. But I knew that Elijah at that moment was close to God, that he had previously been spending hours in long prayers to be in contact and close communion with his maker. And he naturally knew his maker would answer. This was about a 20-second prayer uttered quietly, but in the presence of all Israel. And it got immediate results. But like Mr. Armstrong said, this wasn't just a random event in Elijah's life. This 20-second prayer, it wasn't the first time he had prayed in several weeks or something like that. This 20-second prayer was built on the strong foundation of constant, earnest, close contact with his father. That is how the 20-second prayer was able to produce that kind of results. Matthew 17, uh, verses 10 and 11 here. If I can just get to that. Matthew 17, verses 10 and 11. This is in the context of Christ meeting with his disciples. And his disciples asked him, saying, 
Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. So at this point, it's talking about an Elijah who would come at a point in the future and he would restore all things. Now you can see in Acts 3 verse 21 that Jesus Christ himself will restore all things. His truth, his law, his government, his successful way of life to the entire world. No human being is going to establish God's kingdom on earth. But Christ is saying here that an Elijah would come before Christ's second coming. And this Elijah figure would restore all things to God's church. God's church, which is the kingdom of God in embryo. That's what this prophecy is talking about. There would be an end time type of the ancient Elijah who would restore all things to God's church. And we have all kinds of proof for you at thetrumpet.com that Mr. Armstrong fulfilled this office. He was the one who restored the knowledge of all the crucial biblical doctrines to God's church. When he came on the scene in the 1900s, the church had no idea of the majority of crucial Bible doctrines. And through him, God was able to restore those truths to the church. And so it's interesting that Mr. Armstrong also had a 20-second prayer miracle. He also experienced dramatic results from an instantaneous prayer. A prayer that he uttered in the moment, needing a quick answer, and he received it. Like I mentioned earlier, this, this example can be found in the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, which is available for free at thetrumpet.com. Chapter 22, Astounding Answers to Prayer. And right here at the beginning, Mr. Armstrong writes, Never in my life have I faced a more serious problem than the situation that confronted us at the beginning of the year 1930. Not only were we confronted with another lean year economically, with our own personal financial condition at rock bottom, with the whole nation plunging on down, down, down into the depths of depression, but it seemed as if we were destitute of faith in God as well. We were within six weeks of the birth of our fourth child. My wife, who had been so miraculously healed in 1927, was now in an alarming condition. She was anemic. Her blood was lacking in iron. Her strength appeared depleted. The doctor was definitely alarmed. He was afraid of complications at the time of delivery due to her weakened condition. He insisted she go to the hospital where every emergency facility would be available in the event of trouble. So here's another health trial with Mr. Armstrong's wife. 
just six weeks away from the birth of Garner Ted, their second son. And this was a really trying experience, not just because they were wondering if their son would survive the birth or if Mrs. Armstrong would survive giving birth, but also they hadn't even paid off their last hospital bill yet. And so the hospital wouldn't even admit them until that previous bill was paid. Six weeks out, and they don't have a hospital to go to for the birth of Garner Ted. And yet again, they're wondering what will come of Mrs. Armstrong and the baby. Mr. Armstrong, of course, was praying nonstop about this. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be concerned if your wife were in this condition? Wouldn't you do whatever you could? Do your part and then some to try to stop something like this from happening? A possible complication or death in childbirth? Mr. Armstrong had to wonder, though, why wasn't he receiving answers to his prayers this time? He had so often before seen firsthand that God can work miracles and that God can answer prayers. And he had done so so often in Mr. Armstrong's life up to this point. Keep in mind, too, this is before Mr. Armstrong even had become a minister yet. And he was already going through experiences like this and seeing God's intimate involvement in his life all the time. Mr. Armstrong remembered the promise of 1 John 3, verse 22, which says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments. You see, there is a condition there. When we ask God for something, it would only make sense that we are doing our best to obey him if we expect him to answer us the way we want. Again, just think of any physical father-child relationship. When your child asks you for a new toy or asks you to get up from the dinner table to go play, whatever it might be, if that child is in the middle of throwing a crying temper tantrum? Are you going to be especially willing to grant that request? Of course not. When our children obey is when we want to answer their requests. So Mr. Armstrong learned this condition a long time ago. Obedience. If you want to get answered prayers, you have to obey. He also learned about faith being the second condition to answer to prayer. You have to firmly believe that what you're asking for will take place. You have to believe that God has the power to answer, or else why ask at all? So Mr. Armstrong certainly believed this time around that God would heal his wife and preserve the baby. 
He had already seen it happen before. He knew that God could do it again. It wasn't an issue of faith this time. And yet he still wasn't getting answers. Finally, he remembered the example of Jesus Christ telling the disciples when they were unable to cast out a demon that they would only get results through fasting and prayer. Mr. Armstrong decided to try that. One hour in scripture study, one in contemplation, and one in prayer. Continuously going through this cycle the entire time he was fasting. He fasted from Sabbath morning all the way through Sunday afternoon. Just keeping this cycle going. But notice this. Notice what he was actually praying about during this fast. Mr. Armstrong wrote, I did not once ask God to heal my wife as yet. I had been doing that for weeks without result. I was fasting and praying not for the purpose of bringing pressure on God to force him to obey my will and give what was asked, but to find out what was wrong with me. I realized we did not need to nag at God, never fast as a means of inducing God to answer. Mr. Armstrong prayed for understanding of how fasting works. God showed Mr. Armstrong that you're not supposed to pray to actually try to force God to answer what you want. Fasting is a way to draw closer to God, to think more like he does, to speak and behave more like him, to have the same desires he does, to align ourselves with him in every possible way. And then once we have done that, when we finally start asking for things in prayer again, they will be given to us. So after all this fasting and prayer, God opened up Mr. Armstrong's mind to the cause of the problem. Why he wasn't receiving answers to these prayers for healing. He realized he had been keeping his mind more and more fully on this clay project. So a little bit earlier, I believe the chapter before in the autobiography, chapter 21, Mr. Armstrong is all caught up in this clay business, this supposed miracle clay that could heal, that was a, a real benefit cosmetically too. He was trying to sell it to as many outlets as he could and try to make as much money as he could to help his family survive yet another financial downturn in their lives. So, of course, this probably was motivated the right way. He, he did want to help his family by being successful with this clay business, but it became something that was maybe an idol in his life. It became something that took the place of God in his life. Mr. Armstrong said, I knew where the trouble had been. I realized fully that I had gotten so wrapped up in this clay project, the development of formulas, devising plans for marketing, and selling enough of it to beauty shops to keep us from starving, 
that I had unconsciously been drifting farther from the previously close relationship with God. Notice this, though. Notice how he figured this out. He said, I had not stopped Bible study or prayer. I had not even realized that I had been diminishing it. But now I realize that I had actually become closer to this clay project than I was to God. It was fast becoming first in my mind, my interest, and my time. And God will not play second fiddle to anything. See, he wasn't even praying and studying less. But God knows what's in our minds and hearts. He knows what we prioritize. And he won't tolerate us putting a business venture or even our families or anything else above him. And until we discover that problem and root that out, it's not really going to work too well when we try to ask for things from him. But all of a sudden, Sunday afternoon comes around while Mr. Armstrong is on this fast for more than a day. And this feeling came over him. He knew that his fast could end because God would answer. And so finally, he offered up about a 20-second prayer, just like the ancient Elijah did. And he knew that God would answer. He said he asked God to heal his wife, put iron in her blood, and give her the needed strength. Then he started asking for food and fuel because it was the middle of winter. He asked for money for that hospital bill to pay off the previous birth so that the hospital would admit him this next time. He also asked for a new winter top coat because he had a huge hole in his. And at the very end, he said, Father in heaven, you know what I need before I ask, and you have promised to supply every need. So I ask you to supply whatever else I need. Notice this too. Immediately the answers came. So once Mr. Armstrong was finally back on track with God, he asked this quick prayer and he immediately got results. His parents brought over the food and fuel that they needed. The next morning, his wife was completely back to full health. That same morning, right in the mail was a letter from one of his wife's uncles. And there was a settlement in that letter from her mother's will. And it was in the exact amount of the hospital bill that they owed. His, Mrs. Armstrong's mother had died over 20 years before that. And yet that morning, a settlement came in the mail, the exact amount of the hospital bill. You couldn't even make up a story like this. Finally, one of his brothers offered to buy Mr. Armstrong a coat, which Mr. Armstrong was embarrassed to accept, but finally he did. And more than that, his other brother offered a car to take them to the hospital, and they could use it until they went to the hospital. And finally, uh, his, Mr. Armstrong's sister's husband came all the way over to give Mrs. Armstrong her, her robe and slippers, which Mrs. Armstrong had just off had, 
offhand mention that she needed. Every single thing they asked for and even more, God did provide. These are the types of prayers that get results. Way back in January of 1993, Philadelphia Church of God Pastor General wrote, Pastor General Gerald Flurry wrote, Elijah means my God is God. That says a lot. Elijah revealed the true God. At the same time, he exposed all religions except his own as false. Mr. Armstrong did the same work. The PCG also follows that tradition. Whether people realize it or not, the PCG is the only church that reveals the true God. And it's through drawing attention to stories like this, whether anciently with Elijah or in this end time with that Elijah type, these are faith-strengthening, life-changing prayers and examples we can all look to for inspiration and follow in our own lives. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 1130 a.m. Central Time.